You are listening to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Williton Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We are also found on Facebook. Altogether, we are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics A Love Story. It seems as though we are always in a political season. It is never-ending. When I started this show on January 15, 2016, I thought that it would last until Donald J. Trump was defeated in November. We have just experienced four years of his presidency, and here he is again telling us that he is running in 2024. How, how did he do that? Uh, did he do a good job? Was he that good a president? Today we have with us a man who has written a book that assesses Trump's leadership. The book is Changing Their Minds, Donald Trump and Presidential Leadership. George C. Edwards III is the University Distinguished Professor of Political Science and the Jordan Chair in Presidential Studies Emeritus at Texas A&M University and is a Distinguished Fellow at the University of Oxford. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome Professor Edwards to Politics, a Love Story. Hello, George. Good afternoon, Bob. Uh, You've written a book that I would recommend to anyone. Uh, So I I just want you to know, uh, enjoyment is a hard thing when you're looking at how badly someone has done who had the world in the palm of his, his hand. Uh, you start off with important things for U.S. President, U.S. President to understand: leadership, persuasion, and presidential power. Then you say that the president is not likely to change many minds among those who disagree with him on substance or have little incentive to help him succeed. So, could you expand a little bit on what I just said? Yes, I'll be delighted to. <laughs> I have a, uh, a view of presidential leadership, which I have expressed in a number of books, that presidents rarely can change the political landscape uh, and create opportunities for change. Instead, successful presidents are those who recognize the opportunities that are there and then exploit those opportunities uh, to bring about change. The interesting thing about Donald Trump is that he came to office with unique characteristics, and there are two that I would uh, discuss right now. One is that he had vast experience as a self-promoter. I don't mean that in a negative way. That was his business. He promoted himself, his brand, his buildings, etc. And so he had a lot of experience in promoting things associated with himself. He also came to office with great experience, substantial experience, as a negotiator. And he argued in his in his uh, <clears throat> election or his campaign to be president that the presidency required someone with that experience, as he often said, it requires someone who wrote The Art of the Deal, which is one of his books. And <clears throat> so he said, I'm a great negotiator, and anyone who's any good can negotiate with Congress and, and get what they want. And so the question for me is, was he was – he, an exception. Was he someone who had these unique skills and therefore 
uh, was an exception to the rule of presidents having a difficult time changing minds, whether in the public or in Congress, to uh, to see their policies enacted. So that's what that's what originally uh, drove my interest in in writing this book. Uh, of course, along the way, a lot of other things happened, and uh, he had such a unique approach to dealing with the public in particular, and I think there were, it turned out, a lot of negative consequences for the polity beyond the issues of just whether his policies passed or not or whether he was able to obtain support in the public for his policies. One of the things that um, I take issue with uh, business people who think that because they ran a very successful business, they could easily uh, transition into the office of the United States presidency. Except that if you run your own business, and like Trump must have run his, you're an absolute dictator. But when you come into the United States as the president, you are only one-third of the uh, ruling group that, that gets things done. And you have to take them along with you, or, as you say, if they can't persuade them, and then they have a very unsuccessful term. Um, do you see things the way I just stated them, or do you see things differently? No, you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, anyone who's been in charge of something where, where what they say goes, who can give orders, is going to find the presidency uh, very frustrating uh, because there are so many checks, and we, we have a system of checks and balances. <clears throat> we also, we all learned about checks and balances in high school, right? Yeah. And we all learned also about separation of powers, which can't have both. We, we, we have shared powers, and that's where the checks and balances come from. It's because they're shared powers. And that means that presidents frequently are frustrated in their attempts to enact policies which they believe are for the good of the nation. And, and, of course, everyone will have their own opinion as to which policies are the best for the nation. But presidents are very frequently frustrated. And we know that right now I think I can say with great confidence that uh, President Biden is quite frustrated in, in his efforts to uh, have Congress enact his, his uh, sweeping policies that he has proposed. And one of the things that he was running on was his ability to negotiate and to communicate uh, with the other people because he had spent 36 years in the Senate. And yet, mm -hmm. he's not faring a whole lot better. But there's a difference. As you point out, and I'm going to read this statement that you had in the book, campaigning is different than governing. Campaigns focus on short-term victory and candidates wage them in either-or terms. To win an election, a candidate need only convince voters that he or she is a better choice than, few, than the few available alternatives. In addition, someone always wins whether or not voters support the victor's policy positions. Governing, on the other hand, involves deliberation, negotiation, and often compromise over an extended period. Moreover, in governing, the president's policy is just one of a whole range of alternatives. In sum, one should not infer from success in winning elections that the White House can persuade members of the public and Congress 
to change their minds and support policies they would otherwise oppose. That's pretty profound. Well, it, I, I believe it to be an accurate statement. And what we find when we, I have examined in a series of books uh, all modern presidents, and they all have the same problem. They come in, uh, Ronald Reagan was the great communicator, and he certainly was, uh, from one perspective, a great communicator. Bill Clinton was, we sometimes refer to him as, as the great explainer. Uh, Barack Obama is certainly a very eloquent person. Uh, actually, George W. Bush could give a very good speech. But the fact is that all of these presidents have failed to move public opinion, and particularly on their most important policies. And they've often uh, had political disasters as a result. And we can go back even to FDR. The data, of course, is more scarce then. But we can think of FDR's efforts to get America ready for World War II. And he himself was very frequently frustrated and found that, as he said, you know, I get ahead of the public and I say, follow me. And I look back and, you know, it, it, it's awful because no one's following. <laughs> and uh, he had a very, very difficult time. And people may not remember this, but uh, we, we instituted a draft. And then in 1941, the draft was up for renewal. Now, this is in the middle of 1941, a few months before Pearl Harbor. And <clears throat> the House uh, sustained the draft, renewed the draft by one vote. Ooh. And this is, this is a president who was the greatest politician of the 20th century, uh, a president who said we're facing an international crisis of the highest order, and a president who had big majorities of his own party in Congress. And he still had that kind of difficulty. Now, and we, we have data on public opinion uh, back then, and he, just, he found it very difficult to move the public, even even under these rather extraordinary circumstances. So all presidents faced this. And what is interesting is Donald Trump had a uniquely public relations presidency. And he filed for re-election on the day of his inauguration. He spent millions of dollars advertising long before the election. I mean, throughout his presidency, in other words. He held dozens and dozens of campaign-style rallies throughout his tenure. The first one was in February 2017, the month after he was inaugurated. He's already holding these rallies. So he made a very substantial effort, and and he made a very substantial effort to to reach the public. And, of course, he used his uh, tweeting, Twitter, uh, repeatedly. Uh, and uh, he was able to dominate the news. He had no problem in that. He got plenty of attention. But uh, the fact is, he wasn't able to change public opinion. I can give you some examples of this. We can look at his high-priority uh, policies, and it's quite interesting because they, they present best-test cases of the view that presidents aren't able to change public opinion. So let me, let me just illustrate. Go right ahead. The very first big policy that the Trump administration supported was health care reform, and they wanted to get rid of Obamacare, which until Trump was elected had been unpopular, and they were going to replace it with a Republican alternative. Well, <clears throat> two things happened. First of all, Obamacare almost overnight became popular. That's the first thing. As soon as Trump opposed it, it became popular. 
And the second thing is that he was never able, he and the Republicans, were never able to get public support behind uh, any health care alternative. And, of course, nothing passed. The second policy was tax cuts. Now, that's something that really unifies the Republican Party. So that did pass. But, oddly enough, oddly enough, it was never popular. And here's the interesting thing. Tax cuts are hardly a politician's nightmare. I mean, no, no politician is upset when he faces the public and says, I want to give you money. So <clears throat> uh, despite that, despite that, it, the, the tax cuts were never popular. We can move on to immigration, which is a, a central policy of the Trump administration. I think everyone would agree. And the president was never able to get support for his, his immigration policies. There was no immigration, you know, immigration reform bill ever passed. Uh, he couldn't get he couldn't get public support to build the wall. And the, the way that he got a little bit of wall and was only a little bit of wall built was to declare a national emergency and take money out of the defense budget. Uh, and uh, I think a legally questionable move, but we'll, we'll let the courts decide on that. But at any rate, that's the only way he got uh, uh, extra money to build the wall. I could go into international trade, and the president was not really all that enthusiastic about international trade or didn't like the, the, the rules and conditions of international trade, tried a lot to change things. Uh, the public did not follow him on that either. So on all of these policies, which I think are central policies in the Trump administration, and which the president communicated uh, substantially, I mean, often, early and often. And the fact is, he was never able to get the public support for his policies, despite the fact that he could get plenty of attention for his statements, his, his particularly, of course, his tweets. But he couldn't move public opinion. Well, I'm going to read from your book the reasons that that may, may have occurred. You gave us the answer in your book or answers. Donald Trump has a distinct personality and style and an unusual background for a chief executive. In addition to his extensive experience, as you pointed out, of self-promotion and negotiation, his many distinctive and frequently disturbing characteristics include his lack of job preparation, re re routine use of hyperbole, distortion, and fabrication, intellectual incoherence and disarray, ignorance of policy and the functioning of government, uninformed, impulsive, and capricious approach to making decisions, rejections of inconvenient information, narcissistic certitude, belligerency and temperamental unsuitability for the presidency, vengefulness and crude trashing of critics, and incapacity for moral and intellectual embarrassment. Do you think that maybe the public was a little more perceptive to these faults rather than uh, his words? Yes, I think that there was a backlash. <clears throat> and a number of uh, high-level uh, Republican officials told him that and uh, in rather colorful terms that he was his own worst enemy. Uh, and that there was pe people were responding to the nature of, of his discourse. And um, 
that that he needed he needed to calm down, be more, act more responsibly, and and he might he might be able to at least attract a little bit more support. And of course, this became highly salient in the reelection campaign. And uh, but the president repeatedly said, "Well, I I just can't I can't change, uh, and my base expects me to to communicate in these in these ways and and, and uh, you know and bombastic, if you will. I don't know. I'm trying to I'm trying to think of reasonably neutral terms to, to describe it, but it is is interesting. In Bob Woodward's book Peril, uh, there's a couple of uh, times when uh, when Trump himself is saying that he's been taken off Twitter and uh, it's actually nicer and and uh, he's doing better <laughs> because he's not he's not irritating people. So I think that you know one part of his brain knows this, but on the other hand, he feels that that that's his his nature is to communicate in in the terms in which he communicated and um, that his base likes it, and that's why he was successful with the base. So I wouldn't expect any long-term change from the president uh, if he if he runs for for election again. I'd expect to see similar kinds of discourse. But I think that there there are a lot of problems with this kind of discourse. In addition to the transactional issue of well, are you able to to obtain support for your policies? If you communicate this way, because I think that um, there's uh, uh, you you miss you mislead the public if you say things that aren't true. And the president said a lot of things. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of times said things. Actually, it's thousands uh, of times he said things that that, that were not true. And that is a problem. Uh, We can we can start, you know, talk about. You mislead people about the nature of threats because it's useful in campaigning uh, to, to fuel fear. And we all have seen that all our lives in campaigns. And no doubt uh, members of both parties engage in this. But the president would uh, exaggerate crime, exaggerate threat from immigration and foreign trade and, and, and the threat of environmental regulations, <laughs> uh, election fraud, Turns out that, I mean, he was, I would say, quite wrong about all these, while at the same time offering reassurance that Russia, no problem, climate change, no problem. At various points in the pandemic, COVID-19, no problem. So I think that's, that's a, on, on, a, on a broad level that it's, it's a problem for, for public discourse. Well, And then when you, when you, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you finish. Okay, well, I, I, in it, in it, you know, this one could say, well, there's a matter of judgment. Okay, fair enough. But then there's, there's lots of times when he just said things which simply aren't true. And um, I don't know whether it's because of his general ignorance of policy or just wanting to make himself look good or sloppiness in doing reality checks on his thoughts or a well-developed cynicism. The fact is that when you keep saying things that aren't true, it doesn't take long for the public to conclude that you're untrustworthy, and then they're much less likely to, to follow you. So again, that's I would say that's at the level of transactions. But if you're distorting the public's knowledge 
that's even worse because I think you corrode public public uh, discourse and create a, a, a culture of what I would say is a suspicion and distrust of facts. And if we don't have a common set of facts, if we blur the line between opinion and fact, it becomes nearly impossible to have meaningful debate about policies and topics. And surely there are important debates to have about tax proposals, about immigration levels, about health care. I mean, we need those. That's good. There's nothing wrong with proposing any of those kinds of policies and changes in any kind of those policies. But you can't, you can't have sensible discussion, I don't think, if, if you can't, you can't um, share facts. Hmm. You, have, you have to have facts. Moreover, I think there's, a, there's another problem, and that is undermining uh, democratic accountability. Because if you don't have agreed upon facts, then it becomes impossible for people to make judgments about how the government's performing or hold it accountable. So if you say, look, I've got everything under control in North Korea, well, North Korea is actually producing more effective missiles and, and more bombs, well, that's a bit misleading. If you say that allies aren't contributing to, to NATO when they've always contributed to NATO, there was no one in arrears, well, that's misleading. If you say that payments on uh, tariffs on Chinese goods are being paid by the Chinese when any any freshman in college knows who pays the tariffs and it wasn't the Chinese, uh, I mean, we can go on and on. But then it, it, you really undermine democratic accountability because you're saying, well, you know, we don't have any problems. And, you know, what I'm doing is working beautifully. And and. <clears throat> It may not be working beautifully. Sometimes it may be working beautifully. But I think it's a problem for, for democracy that concerns me a great deal. Uh, yeah, it should concern all of us. Uh, there were a couple of things. Number one, let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you for those who have just tuned in. We are talking today to our author, uh, George C. Edwards III, who has written a book, Changing Their Minds, Donald Trump and Presidential Leadership. And as far as telling lies over and over and over again, even when he's been corrected, whether by uh, the Washington Post, uh, Kessler, who does the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the truth aspect, or uh, his staff, it doesn't make any difference. He keeps on spewing the same lies. So, that reminds me of the 30s when Goebbels, who I think was Hitler's minister of information, said, tell the lie over and over and over again, and soon the people believe it. And the bigger the lie, the easier it is to swallow. I don't know if he actually took that in to do what he's doing. I think that's just part of his personality. But certainly, uh, it's similar to that. And Let's go back to a couple of the points you used that didn't get approval of the public. Immigration. So everybody's talking about growing the economy. Without immigrants, how do we do that? Every great growth spurt this country has experienced has been with the help of recent immigrants. So if we're allowing fewer people in, how are we ever going to get to 3 4 or 5% sustained annual GDP growth. I, I don't know. Well, you're, 
you're 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 absolutely correct. I mean, there's two basic ways to grow an economy, and one is have more workers producing more goods and services, and the other is, is of course, having um, them produce more efficiently. And efficiency, and I, I'm not an efficiency expert, but I have read the studies. It's something that it's difficult to manipulate, and it 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 ebbs and flows, and it's beyond what what government can do. But what gov but something the government can do is is make sure there's enough workers. And I think it would be hard to say with a straight face in America today that there's too many workers. Indeed, we have millions of jobs that are unfilled at all kinds of levels. And um, <clears throat> so it seems to me that if you really want to grow the economy, you have to have people. And right now, Germany, Japan, and China are all facing demographic issues because their populations are beginning, already have or are about to shrink. And fewer people working, that means, of course, the economies will not grow uh, as rapidly. It also means there's fewer people, for example, paying into the Social Security. Right. Uh, and you got an aging population. That's a success of humanity. That's a good thing because people are living longer. And that's wonderful. Uh, but you know, you got to you got to pay into Social Security to support those people, and many people are highly dependent on their Social Security. Well, that's just some examples of why why I think we need immigration. Now, one can have interesting discussions of immigration, and that's fine. But you you should not have a discussion, in my opinion, you should not have a discussion of immigration by fueling fear that the immigrants are just terrible people, and and they're taking taking away jobs from America in the absence of evidence uh, of this, in fact, in the face of evidence that immigrants are not terrible people. They actually commit, on average, fewer crimes than uh, American citizens. And um, <clears throat> they are not, they, uh, over, over just a generation or two, they're, they're a net plus to the American economy. So I think, you, you know, that's where we, we need some common facts. And I think, I think that people, as we just discussed a little while ago, hear all these lies and begin to filter and realize that what they're being told is not true. And it's maybe uh, uh, the major media outlets are not telling things without a slant as well. So people have to figure out for themselves. And it looks like that workers, lower paid workers, are realizing that the people at the top have never stopped taking larger and larger salaries and bonuses while they have been kept, at, like half the country, I believe, is at a $7.25 uh, minimum wage. It's a federal minimum wage. How can you live on seven twenty-five an hour? And yet there are people that are, if you look at the Friday's edition of the Wall Street Journal, there is a section called Mansion, and it shows all of these huge houses and estates, and uh, $140 million is no longer the most expensive one that's listed in there. So people are starting not to go back to work for the same lousy salary they had with the high risk of potential COVID infection. So well, they're learning. Uh, apparently so. Apparently so. It's something that we're trying to get a handle on. I say we, uh, any, anyone who's interested in public policy, trying to get a handle on this is this is a somewhat unprecedented situation, 
in the economy. I don't pretend to have the answers for all this, um, but all uh, but I but I, I would suggest that that President Trump did not have the answers and did not help uh, did not contribute to a public discussion, a sensible public discussion about these problems. Uh, <clears throat> he just because I think he didn't really know very much about public policy. In fact, I, I would challenge people just in all of the words, and of course they're all publicly available, uh, to ever find a Donald Trump just stringing two or three substantive paragraphs against about any policy uh, together at any time. He certainly would say, this is a great policy. But, you know, he said that all the time, or I'm doing great. You know, this is great. But that's not a substantive discussion. I, I just think he was un, un, uncapable, incapable of doing that because he just didn't know very much about public policy. He didn't read. We we all know that he didn't. He didn't read memos. Um, <clears throat> I mean, he did get briefed. I, I don't mean that no one ever told him anything. I did that his staff was irresponsible. I'm not suggesting that, but he really did not have a handle on public policy matters and cannot to this day discuss them in any detail. What he can discuss is his grievances. Uh, and going back to your comment about the big lie and Joseph Goebbels, uh, well, right now, we, of course, are facing the big lie about the outcome of the 2020 election, which is <clears throat> not only problematic in itself, but because it's so fu- elections are so fundamental to democracy, it's another example the president's discourse, I think, undermining uh, the foundations of democracy in America. And I, th- I find that very problematic. I do, too. And I think we're on a sword's edge right now. On one side, uh, in strengthening our democracy. On the other side, losing our democracy. Uh, 147 members of Congress, 139 members of the House, eight U.S. senators... I think most of them still today will not concede that Joe Biden won the presidency. Yes, that that is, I mean, it, it's shocking. And uh, in the absence of evidence, and again, it, I, I, I come back to this point, we need to have shared facts. We need to be able to do some reality testing. We need, we need to understand what evidence is and what evidence is not. And um, I think the President Trump's discourse discouraged people from paying attention to anyone who disagreed with him. And he was he was actually often uh, open about this because he wanted to delegitimize uh, the opposition. Uh, Leslie Stahl asked him about why he was so critical of the press. And he said uh, early, early, even before he became president. And he said, I want to delegitimize you. So when you criticize me in the future, people won't believe you. Hmm. And he was successful uh, to some degree because he got his co-partisans, Republicans, to to really dismiss, dismiss press that was critical of the president. And that that, again, is, I think, a big problem for trying to have sensible discussions. It also, of course just uh, increases uh, polarization. And that's, that's bad. That's a bad thing for America, and, and we have a difficult time uh, overcoming it. Well, I, I see 
two things moving forward. Number one, uh, there may not be a Republican Party after 2024. Or, on the other hand, uh, if you have ever read uh, Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, it could be the beginning of an autocracy and concentration camps here in this country. And I won't bet which way it's going to go. Well, I'm not, I'm certainly not predicting uh, concentration camps uh, or anything like that myself. But I do think that we are, we are, we are likely to have increased polarization. Uh, that's for sure. And I think that the president's uh, uh, another, uh, something we haven't discussed, but I think it's quite important is that he did a lot of stoking division and racial tensions and cultivating what, what we might call tribalism uh, by explicitly tending to his base uh, and uh, not paying basically no rhetorical deference to the notion of the presidency as a national unifier. So he employed you know, racially charged language when he was talking about immigrants, when he was talking about Black Lives Matter protests when he was talking about <clears throat> Charlottesville, uh, when he said both sides are to blame, you know. And, you know, for example, when he, there were uh, uh, a set of uh, liberal uh, Democratic congressmen, and he said, why don't they go back where they came from? <laughs> well, three of them came from America. Uh, but, of course, they were my racial and ethnic minorities. So we know that, that during this period, it Racial and ethnic differences have strengthened as drivers of political division. We know we, we know that because we can measure that pretty well. And we also think that the president's rhetoric ushered in a climate that favored expression of prejudices, and I think that's very bad for America. And it, it's very odd because most presidents seek to expand their coalitions. And they may not move public opinion very far, but all of President Trump's predecessors enjoyed the support of a majority of the public at some time during their tenures. But Trump was different. He won the election as the least popular major party candidate in modern history. He never enjoyed the approval of a majority of the public. I think he concluded that he would never persuade most of the public to support either him or his policies. So his solution was to fire up the base. And you fire up the base often with by, by these stoking what I call racial tensions and, and division. And this deliberately amplifying public tensions by seizing on these divisive topics and, you know, articulating them in a in, in blunt us against them language. And it did energize the space. It was very successful at that. But I think it undermines the context necessary for, for negotiation or productive policy discussion or, or for policy. And, and, and then, then Trump becomes the captive of his base, interestingly enough, which was very loyal. But he couldn't, he, couldn't, he couldn't move from the base then on immigration, on guns, on, on, on wearing masks. I mean, the, the whole thing. I think it was, it was very, uh, very unfortunate uh, for, for American society. <clears throat> you talk about... Effective polarization, talking about polarization overall, real versus imagined. Uh, what you say is, uh, under imagined, Republicans thought that 38% of Democrats were LGBT, 
The reality is only six <laughs> per, 6% are. And underimagined, uh, Democrats thought that 44% of Republicans earned over $250,000. The reality is only 2% do. 55% of Democrats said that Republicans make them afraid. 49% of Republicans said the same of the Democrats. That's polarization. Yes, that, that, and we, we call that effective, with an A, effective polarization. <clears throat> it's not just we have different views, but we think that the members of the opposite party, and this is both Democrats and Republicans, are not only wrong, and of course we think they're wrong, that's because they're in the other party. That's fine. That's what it, what it needs to be to have effective democracy. But we not only think that they're wrong, we think that they're really bad people and they're out to undermine America. Now, that's scary because if these people are out to undermine America and really bad people, <clears throat> and we do, we do believe those things, then you can't negotiate with They're the devil. You can't, you can't you know, negotiate with the devil. So it makes it very hard. And so it's exactly what we, we see right now. So President Biden makes proposals, and he will, of course, get not a single Republican vote in Congress for whatever whatever is negotiated over the next couple of days. I don't know the exact form that will take, but we're all paying attention in the news to see what the outcome of these negotiations, but whatever they are, it doesn't matter. There won't be a single Republican in Congress to vote for it because the, the Republican uh, voters want first and foremost to oppose whatever the Democrats support. And, and George, and, and I might, I, I might say that the Democrats would do the same to the Republicans probably, but anyhow, go ahead. Um, in your book, George, you uh, list some of the causes of effective polarization. Social isolation. Most close friends share their view. Race, a polarization factor about Obama's policies. Worldviews that are just totally different. Media, the fragmented nature of news media is polarization in itself. The president, he contributed to polarization and motivated reasoning. There is much, is there much prospect of changing people's minds? And your answer to that is, there is not. Right. Uh, there's a lot, the way human beings are wired, meaning the way their brains are wired, is that <clears throat> we have certain biases. And to make, a, to simplify just a little bit, that means when there's information that comes up, we, we are presented with information. If, it, if we agree with that information, then we, we let it in, and that just reinforces things. If, if it's contrary information, contrary to what we believe, our tendency is to do two things. One, dismiss it, and two, argue against it. And so that's just the way human beings are wired. So people's predispositions are strong and getting stronger, and the more, the more effective polarization there is, and the more partisan polarization there is, then the stronger the emotions that, that are, if you will, underlying our choices about which candidates we're going to support, which parties we're going to support. And that makes it even more difficult for candidates to get through uh, or for, for a president to 
get through and say, look, I, I really wish you would consider uh, my view here, my alternative. Uh, very few people will do that. And now, because we have fragmented media, that means that people tend to go <clears throat> to a media source with which they agree. Uh, so rather than being presented with a range of views, uh, they they go just to hear their own views parroted back to them. And you you may recall that uh, after right after the election, and when Fox News was not as uh, supportive of President Trump's claims about a stolen election as he wanted them to be, then <clears throat> then uh, other right wing alternatives rang up or, or expanded substantially and got a lot more viewers because people were just shifting to find somebody who would tell them what they wanted to hear. Uh, that, again, is not good for democracy. It's not good for sensible discourse about the nature of public policy. Well, um, what I want to just talk about for a moment is uh, at the 2020 uh, convention, the Republicans put forth not not a real platform for uh, Trump to run on. And here we are, he's thinking of going into 2024 again, and uh, everything I read says if he wants to, the uh, nomination, he's going to get it. So is he going to try to run on a non-platform again? Is he going to run it all? Well, I don't know, you know uh, <clears throat> what his ultimate decision will be. But I think he will run. I, I think the odds are that he will run. And you're absolutely right. In, in 2020, the Republicans had no platform. They had no platform committee. They had no platform report. They had no platform. So when it was pointed out, you have no platform, our platform is Donald Trump. Whatever Trump wants, that's our platform. Um, then they, what they did is they went and got the 2016 platform and passed it again because <laughs> that was a document that they had ready. Um, but I think the platform, is, is, in this case, is, is, is frankly superfluous, that the issue is Donald Trump. And are you for or against Donald Trump? And that's, that is an advantage for Donald Trump and getting the nomination, uh, because most of the Republican Party, according to the, the current polls, most members of the Republican Party, most adherents to, of the Republican Party, uh, would support his his renomination. Um, but the bad news is that um, the public, when presented with Donald Trump again as an alternative, uh, is going to uh, remember uh, Donald Trump's behavior while he was in office. And so the, I, I repeat again that this is a president who never enjoyed the support of the American public, not once. And so that's a disadvantage uh, for, for him. Uh, getting the nomination is one thing. Getting elected is something else. Now, we don't know what conditions will be like in the country uh, in 2024. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm unable to predict what the conditions will be like in the country in 2024, where the economy will be, as we hope, will be doing wonderfully, and, and whether there'll be peace or whether there'll be uh, conflict in the world. You know, I, I don't know, but certainly I don't think the odds favor uh, Donald Trump being reelected as president. 
And I think that he his campaign, frankly, will be based a lot on his personal grievances. I think, I think we'll hear as much about the election was stolen from me uh, as we will about any particular policy proposals. I think there's an erosion of support, obviously his base. He had 46% of the vote when he was elected in 2016. Uh, because of third-party candidates, that was enough for him to get a plurality and win. Uh, but I hear, I read lots of different things, and it seems as very prominent Republicans are telling people, don't vote for Republicans, vote for Democrats. Now, aside from the Lincoln Project and the Never Trumpers, and that's Bill Kristol there, uh, there is also an editorial in the Times by Christy Todd Whitman, the former uh, Republican governor of New Jersey and head of the EPA right. during Bush, I believe. And that, that yes. uh, editorial said, don't vote for Republicans. Now, I think there are more and more, and we'll never know because the polling is not going to drill down to get their uh, opinions. So I don't know. But I, my sense is that his support is eroding, not from the, uh, the wild-haired advocates, but from the more party establishment. Well, the, the party establishment has never uh, supported Donald Trump strongly and, or at all. And it's unlikely to do it again. Uh, a lot depends on on uh, President Biden and and how successful uh, people view him as being. Um, I would like to correct one thing you said though. Donald Trump did not get the plurality in 2016. Hillary Clinton did. Ah, uh, you're Donald right. Trump, Three million Donald, more votes. Donald, yeah, yeah. I just just want to correct that. Thank you for the audience. Uh, uh, it was the uh, the vagaries of the electoral college. Which was, which is a terrible system, I might add, hmm. uh, and which I've written about extensively. At any rate, uh, that that allowed Donald Trump to win the presidency while losing the popular vote. Almost every social scientist that I've had on this show, and there have been dozens, almost every one of them agreed that uh, the electoral college is terrible. So, uh, good. I'm glad to hear it. You're joining a good group. <laughs> um. Okay, so uh, as you pointed out, um, uh, if presidents can move public opinion in their direction, Trump was well positioned, we've sort of discussed this before, to obtain the public support for the alternatives to Obamacare that he championed. On the other hand, its resistance is being, to being led, and Trump's unpopularity and lack of competence in communicating beyond his base should make us reluctant to anticipate success, whether by Trump or the other Republicans moving forward. Uh, that's pretty much a given, isn't it? Well, it's different. It's, uh, we, sh we, sh we should, first of all, not expect presidents to change public opinion very much. Uh, that's one. Now, as far as other Republicans, uh, I think that it's easy to imagine a, a Republican other than Donald Trump, at least not alienating the public and, uh, and getting backlash. And so not losing, not losing public opinion, as I, as I believe that uh, Donald Trump did. Uh, and we can also easily imagine uh, other Republicans engaging in, in sensible uh, and fair public discourse. 
uh, one of my favorites, be- just because I, I know, knew him well, and his presidential library is outside my door here in Texas, uh, is George H.W. Bush. And so, I mean, th- th- this, is, this is an entirely different uh, character uh, than, than Donald Trump. And we never had to be embarrassed or felt that democracy was threatened when uh, George H.W. Bush was in the White House. Uh, and and the, the consequences of his administration were, 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 not, were not negative, as, as, as I believe that the consequences of the administration of Donald Trump was. Well, you also point out about misinformation that certainly there might have been a smidgen uh, during George H.W. Bush's uh, time. Uh, he was, after all, the head of the CIA for a while, and that's basically their stock and trade, uh, and maybe even during his son's uh, two terms, but nothing like we see today. In fact, you point out, George, in your book, that in the contemporary environment, there is no reliable check on misinformation. The public lacks trust in experts, at least partly because the experts seem so often to contradict one another. Moreover, the rise of social media has undermined the ability of central gatekeepers to vet the information that reaches the public. So that's another problem that we've got in our society. Well, that is, that is, a, that is a broad problem in society now. Partly that's a result of technology. Partly it's a result of efforts like Donald Trump's to de- delegitimize these central gate- gatekeepers or, or vetters. And so I think we see this uh, right now with, with vaccines. And uh, the misinformation level on vaccines is, is, is very large. And uh, we know that the more educated you are, the much more likely you are to get a vaccine, for example. And so people at the, with lower, lower levels of education, people who live in more isolation, are, are less likely to get vaccines, less likely to understand, more likely to be very uh, loss-averse, very, very worried about getting vaccines, and have very little way uh, to do reality testing on the misinformation that they receive. It's very unfortunate. It's unfortunate for all of us, but it's particularly unfortunate for them because they're the ones who are more likely, of course, to get ill, become ill. Hmm. Um. So the, one of the pieces of misinformation, as long as we have just broached that topic, is the idea that tax cuts on the wealthy increase revenue. Well, one of my guests uh, has been Douglas Holtz Eakin, who had been head of the Congressional Budget Office during George W. Bush's term. And I asked him very specifically, do lower taxes on the very wealthy bring in more revenue than you lose by lowering the taxes. And he said, I commissioned a study by my staff. And what we found was that only 30 to 50% of the money loss actually comes back. And yet that keeps on being brought up. Uh, Paul Krugman of the New York Times, a Nobel winning economist, has said that that's a zombie idea. Kill it and it comes back to life over and over and over again. So uh, why do, do people still bring that up? 
Well, I think the, uh, I, I have to speculate here, but I, I believe the reason is because it's convenient. Uh, it supports uh, their, uh, their notions. Now, I think, you know, we also have to understand that <clears throat> people supporting such tax cuts um, don't really want a lot of analysis. And indeed, if you, if you look at the, uh, the process by which the tax cut was passed, the, the, the tax cut passed at the end of 2017 was actually passed, it was before, before the full analysis, the full scoring of, of the bills. Uh, and, and once again, though, you also have people who are perfectly willing to dismiss studies like the one that you just mentioned and say, well, that's wrong. Well, okay, you say it's wrong. What do you have to, to, to offer to replace it? And they don't, but they, it's, it's become, it's like a, a religious view. You, know? <laughs> you don't have to prove it. You just believe it and, um, and, and hope, for, hope for the best. And that that happens continuously because it's consistent with what certain members of Congress uh, want. Well, is it just the members of Congress or the people that fund them that want it? And those are usually the big the big kahunas, the the billionaires, the the centimillionaires who they will benefit greatly from tax cuts at the top. Now, back in Eisenhower's day. Uh, or even Kennedy's day. I think at Eisenhower, the top tax rate was 90%. In Kennedy's, it was 70%. So there you can see lowering the taxes on the wealthiest could have stimulated the economy somewhat. But now, not at 38 or 36%, are you going to stimulate the economy enough to make it worthwhile? Well, you may, you, you may well be right. And uh, we should we should also recognize, though, uh, I, I, and I don't know, of course, there's only so many billionaires, <laughs> but uh, uh, people of higher incomes are now uh, more frequently going to vote for uh, Democrats rather than, than Republicans uh, for Congress. But there are plenty of very, very wealthy people, of course, who want their taxes to be as low as possible and certainly are supporting uh, Republican candidates. But... But there are also some very wealthy people who support Democrats. Um, so I just I just don't want to uh, oversimplify matters to say that there's some conspiracy here and some rich people are just buying Congress. I don't think it's quite as simple as that. There are there are views that is as I say something like a religion that lower taxes are just good. Period. And um, we ought to we ought to do whatever we can, and we can't lower the taxes for the bottom half because. As far as income tax go, the bottom half of the population of, of the population by income, the bottom half, uh, basically don't pay any uh, income taxes. And so the people who pay most of the income taxes are at, at the top part. And so um, they're the ones that you can you can you can actually lower um, whether that's a good idea or not a good idea is an empirical question, though, I think, and not a religious question, in my view. And I'm. I like social science analysis myself. Right. So where is the documentation that shows that that's true, that lowering the taxes is good for everyone? Right. Well, I, I, I don't have it for you. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not asking you I for can't. it now. <laughs> well, we've got um, about two or three minutes left. 
So is there any summation? Well, let me see. I have something near the end of your book. I had 14 pages, by the way, of notes and quotes oh, of your book. That that's how well I liked it and how much I thought was interesting and important to, to know about. Okay. The, the president, you say, failed at persuasion, but his tenure provides further evidence about the nature of presidential leadership. Although it may be appealing to explain major policy changes in terms of persuasive personalities, public opinion is too biased. The political system is too complicated. Power is too decentralized. And interests are too diverse for one person, no matter how extraordinary to dominate. Neither the public or Congress is likely to respond to the White House's efforts at persuasion. Uh, that pretty much is what your book is about. Yes, there's, there's two ways to look at the book. One is to look at it as a book about Donald Trump. And, of course, Donald Trump is pervasive in the book. It's, it's a book about the nature of his presidential leadership. But there's a broader way to look at the book, and that is, <clears throat> was Donald Trump an exception? Was Donald Trump able to, to, to use the presidency in a way that other presidents with less experience as a negotiator, less experience as a self-promoter, were not able to do? And the answer is no. And I think this, in, in fact, not only wasn't he able to do it, but he was so frankly incompetent at it that he, he, he actually made, made matters worse. Uh, he's not only able to persuade people, but he alienated people. Uh, that's what he actually did. But so the big picture, though, is that presidents have a very, very difficult time. And right now, I think this is relevant. For example, right now, uh, Joe Biden is disappointing a lot of people. They don't understand. I mean, I read all these editorials. I see commentary and they don't understand. Why can't you just get everything you want? We like all the stuff that you're proposing, these trillions of dollars policies. And, and, and each one of those policies may be just terrific. And we don't have time to argue about each one of those policies here. But let's just sit, assume for the moment that they're just terrific policies. Um, and so why can't you, why can't you get things through? And, and, and we know why he can't get through. Because he doesn't control United States senators. He doesn't control uh, Senator Manchin. He doesn't control uh, Senator Sinema. So that's why he can't get things through. That's why he has to negotiate. And the public dealt him a hand where he had a 50-50 Senate and a very tiny uh, majority in the House. And he may well lose that uh, before very long. So... That's why he has to negotiate. That's why things are being jettisoned. And the idea that some people ha have in their heads that all he has to do is really be a tougher negotiator or better negotiator and more skillful negotiator or more articulate in, in front of the public and that everything will turn out all right. That's illusory. We need to understand the limits of any president. And with that, I would like to say uh, to George C. Edwards III, uh, that I thank you so much for being on and talking about your book, Changing Their Minds, Donald Trump and Presidential Leadership. Thank you very much, George. My pleasure.
This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.